Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group, Realtor Vinny. The company sells furniture, sells a wide variety of uh, items around the house. Well, yeah, just uh, mostly furniture, but mirrors, lamps, outdoor lighting, indoor lighting. We have an indoor furniture line, too. We started in outdoor furniture, though. That's kind of how we started. I know your I mean, background of kind of when you were younger and then kind of built this company and then get into author. But if someone talks to you today and they go, hey, Bu, what, what do you do? How would you describe yourself? I would probably just say I'm in the furniture business. Okay. <laughs> well, or if you're if you're in the southeast, you may you're going to know the brand. So I would might say I, I I'm the founder of Summer Classics, but now we're a holding company called Gabriella White, and we have several different companies inside that with di different brands. Oh, gotcha. Uh, and then each each brand has kind of its own flair, I'm guessing. Yeah. Well, Gabby is the uh, indoor furniture brand, and it, it is. Its, its primary business is, well, lighting is a big category, but the upholstery is their biggest category, which upholstery is sofas and lounge chairs and that kind of product that you put in your living room or den or wherever. You, and, I mean, you have an interesting story. I mean, I mean, it's really strong background. Uh, I mean, your your family uh, was in the, the manufacturing business and anyway out there, you'll read, you can read in the show notes and you can look up uh, the family. But they have a long history and it's definitely something very intriguing just by kind of reading your journey was that you had the ability for all this capacity yet instead of going up the ranks in the family business you get into sales and you go on your own do you remember yeah. kind of younger you and why that was well um a couple of things happened one is i was the first person in the fourth generation to come into the family business and i went into textile engineering in school so i kind of prep myself to go in. It was a textile business, a fabric business. It was a Fortune 500 business. And uh, but then after I came in, four of my cousins came in right behind me and I kind of went, man, this is going to be a bloodbath. If I get to be 50 and I don't get to be president, I'm going to be really disappointed. And at the time I was calling on uh, small entrepreneurs and they, I would, I would ask them how much they paid themselves, and they were the number they gave me was higher than the CEO of the Fortune 500 company. I was, I was like, well, well, I guess maybe I'll just try that. That's something I could try, and I always, I want to see if I can have my own company. One thing that happened is the, the everything went offshore, and Avondale Mills ended up going out of business, and I was, that is something I really didn't see coming. Did you think at that time when you went on your own that the door would always be open to go back to the family business? Um, no, I didn't. I didn't think of that. I didn't. Oh. <laughs> there were many times, however, I thought, you're an idiot. Why did you do that? You had a great job. I was making, I was 28. This is 1978. And I was making $65,000 a year. So I had a great, a great job. I was on commission primarily, but I had the largest accounts. I was in North Carolina. I had Bluebell, which is Wrangler Jeans, and then they ended up merging with H.G. Lee. I would have had a, I would have had an incredible salary at or, or commission salary at that time. So, but I looked back a couple times and called myself an idiot uh, because I took a twenty-eight thousand dollars job and then. Uh, I had to leave nine months later because I bought 
a, you know, I put 25% of my net worth into this company and I was like, wow, that was a disaster. And that was the beginning of what I call my MBA and mistakes. I just kept making mistakes and I'm working on my PhD now. I kept making mistake after mistake and going like, wow, I know you learn from your mistakes, but these were pretty, pretty heavy mistakes. I made a $30 million mistake later on in life. I was like, wow, I can, how am I going to get through this? So, well, well, let's talk, let's talk about some of those mistakes. I mean, uh, what, what were the mistakes you were originally making? And we'll, we'll get to that $30 million mistake a little later. Oh, thanks. I kind of like to skip that one. <laughs> uh, most of the mistakes I made were because I trusted people and that, and so I would trust them until I had a problem. And then uh, I was in a lot of it had to do with things that they couldn't do anything about. Like um, I've started in making stuff in the United States and I couldn't, could never get enough product. So I moved to Chile, you know, Chile was the first person, first country to go into NAFTA. And I moved to Chile. Not, I didn't move personally to Chile, but I started making all my products in Chile. And and they had a problem with uh, pricing because of the exchange rate, because Chile was getting really strong. Their their dollar, Chilean dollar, was getting or Chilean peso was getting really strong. And so they raised my prices on my containers I had on the water. And I was like, wow, I can't raise my prices to my clients. And so I, this is actually something that's going on right now. In, in this inflationary market we're having now, but I had that happen to me then. And so it's really, that was a lesson one. And then had a huge issue with paint. I was selling to William Sonoma, who owns Pottery Barn. At that time, they own a company called Gardener's Eden. And I had made 10 truckloads of uh, product for them. And I was having um, Chili paint the product for me. I was originally painting in, in the United States, but I was like, this order's too big. And they switch the type of paint they were using to save money. And they use a paint that wouldn't work outside. So paint started peeling almost immediately if it rained. And so I ended up recalling those trucks and starting over and then painting. It worked out, but it's like, uh, you know, you have your, at that time, 10 truckloads was a ton of product for us. So it was like, we're going to go out of business if we don't fix this. And it, oddly enough, it worked out perfectly because it put me in the retail business because I ended up having to sell the truck. So I opened up the factory to the public and that was like ants on sugar. I was like, oh, my God, look at the demand for this product. It's no good. You know, but I don't know if it's any good or not. Back then, I mean, where was the, the startup cost coming from? Was it from your own savings? Was it? Did you have, uh, were you borrowing from banks? I mean, where was the, the original money coming from? I was from taking my Avondale Mill stock. So I had family stock that had yeah. been given to me, and I was giving it to the bank as collateral on loans. Oh, wow. And then eventually, as, I, as the company grew, I ended up having to put up my house every year. I did this for 11 years. I, I was telling my wife. I kept going to my wife. I was like, I've been making 40. I used to make a quarter of a million dollars a year when I was, I, when I got out of the nine month deal, you know, I got into the selling on selling uh, on the road. I started making a lot of money, just making commissions. And then I said, I got to get off the road. I'm never at home. This is crazy. I'm, I have a family I never see. And so I, was, I started a bunch of different companies, like 10 different companies. And oh, Summer wow. Classics is the one that worked. But then I could never pay myself because the volume 
the the company always needed money. And so if I paid myself, I was taking away the money from the company. And so I paid myself the amount that I thought I could live on, which was $41,000 a year. I had a very low mortgage. And so I was just barely eking by, you know, just like, I can't, I can't, I don't know how I'm going to do this. So I did that for like 11 years. I kept going to my wife, like, I can get a job that's way better than this. This is crazy. And she would go, I believe in you. You can do this. I think you really got something here. I was like, okay, I'll go. I'll keep going. And I would go back in and try to make it work. And eventually it works phenomenally. So 10 companies, were they simultaneously uh, kind of being built at the same time? Or was it one after the other, drop one, go to the next one? How it, was it? it ended up being simultaneously. But yes, it was. It was what I was doing is I had through another mistake I made, I had gotten a, a 46,000 square foot warehouse. And I was like, I was trying to fill it up to pay the rent. But I said, one of these things is going to work. So I got in the mirror business, the lighting lamp business, the capiche shell business, the leather, Italian leather business. And then I got a wicker business. And then I started summer classics. One day, my uh, the person that answered the phone, the receptionist came in my office and said, I was called Vista Corporation. And so these companies were Vista Glass, Vista Mirror, Vista Lighting, you know, that stuff like that. And this was uh, Summer Classics. So it was a different name. And so she would answer the phone, Vista Corporation. And she said, almost every time I do, really every time I do, they say, is this Summer Classics? So I said, when you go back to the desk, answer the phone, Summer Classics. I'm like, <laughs> this is it. I'm going to get rid of all that other stuff. So, so I eventually got rid of all the other things I was in and concentrated on this. And, and it made sense because what I was selling mostly when I was a sales rep was outdoor furniture. So I knew that business. So what was the, the, the idea? What was the mindset about having the, the multitude of companies yet under, it sounds like the same infrastructure, yet different subsections of the same company? As, say that again. So what was the idea by having these different comp companies? Yet that work, that something would work and be able to pay me enough to, to get off the road. So I was, just, I was just trying to, number one, fill up the warehouse and pay the rent. Because so, the rent, okay, get this. So yeah. I had I had mortgaged the, the building through the person that owned it. Because mortgage rates back then were like 18%. Hmm. So when we bought it, we had to do the mortgage through the owner. So the owner took back a mortgage on the building. But the mortgage payments were $5,400 a month. So I had to make $5,400 a month after taxes just to pay the, the for this building. And this was back in the 80s. And so um, I, I finally called the guy and said, let me just pay interest only. I can't make these payments. I'm just going to, because he kept trying to collect the, collect the mortgage. And I was like, I, I can't do it. I was, What's interest only? He said $1,300 a month. I said, okay, I can do that. Let's just do that. And when the banks free up, I'll I'll refinance it. And the rates go down. I can refinance it at a lower rate. I won't have such huge payments. So he did that. And I kept the building. And, it, and I thought it was a dog, but it turned out to be a really good thing. In fact, it's a building that we're doing retail out of. And we're doing $5 million a year out of this building now, which I would have... In my wildest dreams, I would have never thought of that. Now, you get rid of the other companies. You find out Summer Classic is kind of like the uh, the Golden Goose. Now, what happens next? How do you expand on on this Golden Goose? 
Okay, so I set up the business model. So, you know, when I was in New York, um, I was calling on what we'll call cutters. So you're selling fabric to cutters who cut and sew into apparel. But then I called on Ralph Lauren, and it was a really different experience. And so I said, how does this work? And he said, it wasn't Ralph Lauren himself, it was his brother, George. He said, well, all we do, or what we really do, our business model is to build the brand and concentrate on marketing and market and build the brand. And, and we can be in any category and we have other people make our product for us. And similar to what I did, ended up doing, they were having people in the United States cut and sew their, their whatever they were doing. And I was trying to sell them materials that they would make jeans or khakis out of. And he was interested in buying from me, but he couldn't meet my minimums. So I went, man, that sounds like a great business model. And then when I got and started selling and Nike had come out and they had the same model, Apple actually has the same model. So um, so I started started my company. I said, I'm going to go with the market. Wherever the market's going, I'm going to try to smell the market in advance and go in that direction. So when I was a sales rep, a company would be making wooden furniture and then people wanted aluminum and I would start selling aluminum. And the wood guy would say, why aren't you selling more of our stuff? I was like, well, if you make aluminum, I'll sell that. And they go, we can't make aluminum. We make wood. I'm like, man, somebody needs to make what the market wants and forget about, you know, what the factory has to make. So, so that's how I set it up. And we're in right now, we're in a lot of different categories and, and we have lots of different factories making product for us. And we, we have boots on the ground wherever the factory is, and they, they're there for QC because we have real high-quality products that last outside for a really long time. It's hard to get uh, because it's expensive. The materials that, that has to be used are real expensive. I mean, it sounds like you were pretty much the driving force of the, the salesperson for the companies, the 10 companies, and then uh, Summer Classic. I mean, when when did you transition or look to transition – from being the head salesperson to kind of being more of, I guess, the owner. I don't know. I, I wish I could. Well, I'm still the, I'm still the cheerleader, you know, but um, my son is CEO now and that's worked out extremely well. Company is much more organized now. I had a sales personality. And so the, the personality sort of went with the company. <clears throat> One of the, I guess it's a great thing. We always were looking for additional supply. We could never get enough product. When we moved to Asia, we were able to get enough product. And then it became a financing issue. Couldn't get enough money. So Royal Bank of Scotland came and met with us. They were the largest bank in the world at the time. I was like, you want, you want to work with me? Little, little, little summer classes. And, and I thought, man, I can, if they'll work with me, I'll never need another bank. And so I was always, one of the things that happens when you're growing what do you have to have? You got to have money. And the faster you grow, the more you have to have. And banks don't really like growth. You know, it, it seems like maybe if you're in software, they like growth. But in, but in a manufacturing business with relatively low margins, you know, between 30 and 60% margins, they're not really excited about inventory, your inventory you're carrying and receivables and, and lending on that. So I was able to work this deal with them that was sounded and turned out to be unbelievable. And then the recess, 2008 recession hit, 
and the Royal Bank of Scotland made some terrible decisions and they lost $62 billion in the fourth quarter of 2008. And they were, they were actually running out of money and the Bank of England had to take them over. And the only place they could get money was to get their customers to get their, give their money back by going to another bank and borrowing from them and dumping, you know, getting rid of the Royal Bank of Scotland. So they were pressuring their, their customers, me being one of them to leave. And you couldn't leave then. It was impossible to find somebody, you know, to move your line. But I've, eventually I moved my line in 2010. And that was, uh, what I say is I didn't need amphetamines to stay awake. It was like, I, I was like, I could not sleep for a period of about a year and a half, two years almost. Why was that? Just the stress? Because you're so worried you're going to lose your business. And and, and if you're like me, you, everything was in your business. Everything you owned, I was like, man, I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my business. I'm going to lose everything. If I don't, this is kind of what's in the book. Um, if I don't fix this situation, i got to figure out how to maneuver through this. And so one of the things I did is I sent a, I watch CNBC all the time, Squawk Box particularly. It's a morning show on the financial news. And so I just sent a blind email to them saying, I've talked to all my senators and my you know, congressmen here and trying to, they don't even know what factoring is. And, I, and so they emailed me and said, do you want to come on the show? I was like, you serious? Yeah. So I ended up going on the show and I called Royal Bank of Scotland. I said, okay, I'm going on CNBC. And if you guys screw me, They've allowed me to come back on and talk about Royal Bank of Scotland. So don't mess with me. I mean, they were, they were, you know, I had paid all my bills. I didn't have any problems. I had never lost money. And yet I'm getting pressured by the bank. It had a lot to do with what was going on at the time, but that was sort of unfair commerce. How were they pressuring you? Um, have you ever you know, heard of squeezing, getting squeezed by your bank? So on your, in your loans documents, they say you can borrow this amount against your inventory. In my case, it was 63%. But we can change that if we get guidance from, and there's only two people that evaluated your inventory at that time. So they would come in and reevaluate my inventory and reduce the percentage of, of money I could get on my inventory. So it went from 43 to, I mean, from 63 to 45 overnight. And they took 2 million plus out of my line overnight. I mean, just, they gave me a warning. In two weeks, we're going to take $2 million out of your account. Uh. And we're like, whoa. So what I did is I called my suppliers and said, I, I don't know what to do. And my largest supplier said, don't worry, I've got your back. And I went, what do you mean? Like, just don't pay me. Just, I believe in you, you know, our whole factory runs on your product. Just don't pay. I'm, I said, like ever? And he said, <laughs> he said, no, pay me when you can, but I've got your back. I'll, how much will you go? I'll go up to $2 million. Like, wow. Okay. So I said, okay, I'm going to call my other suppliers. And so I got a million from another guy. And I got a eight hundred thousand from another guy. I was like, I'm not. I'm not saying don't pay me. Just really extended terms. This particular first supplier was like, pay me when you can. And he knew I would, and I did. So it worked out. 
that ended up borrowing the money interest-free from my suppliers. Is there, was there any kind of, um, I mean, uh, machismo kind of like, uh, like, you know, I can't tell someone that I'm, that I'm having this issue right here because they're going to look less of me. I mean, was there anything like that when you were having the conversation with your suppliers? No, because I was very humble. Okay. I was very humble. I was like, I, I know what I'm doing. I haven't lost any money. I can make this happen. I just need your help. And I need it temporarily. Since this is not a permanent situation, I would just explain the whole thing to them. They understood. They knew the banking situation was. And I and I think this is, uh, I say the lesson learned is, is, is uh, have great relationships. I mean, the, the lesson I've learned in life, I guess, would be a relationship. Have great relationships with with not just your wife, but that's an important one, or your spouse and your friends, but also with your suppliers, have such a great relationship that they understand that you're honest and trustworthy and you're going to do the best you can. And uh, you're also going to figure out their risk tolerance. How much can you take here? You know, some of them balked, but all of them did something. All of them did at least 90 days. Yeah. When, and you, you talked, I mean, you talked about it earlier about it was about 11 years or so that you're borrowing against your house. When did that stop happening? 11 years. So from, from probably 87 to 98. Okay. 99, then, somewhere in there, not somewhere in the 99, 2000. See. And then uh, it's really when the banks, when I changed banks. So every time I changed bank, my deal got better. And by the oh. time I got to Royal Bank of Scotland, I had no personal guarantees. Okay. They never, they never asked me for a financial statement during the whole process. I was like, man, if you look by a financial statement, you might have said, this is not going to be a problem. But they didn't do that. And I didn't, I didn't offer it because I knew that they would use that as a squeeze, another way to squeeze me. You put the money in instead of me. You know, I was like, I knew I was going to get out of it too, as long as I could get through this particular situation. And I didn't have enough money to cover the whole loan anyway. With that that last situation um, where you had your suppliers giving you the line, everything like that, when did the stress slowly start fading away and the you could actually get good night's sleeps again? That's a great question. So I started looking for a bank. I was, you know, it's funny. It's funny. Royal Bank of Scotland asked me to start looking for a bank in uh, April of 2009. I was like, do you think we're idiots? We've been looking the whole time. <laughs> you know, we know, we know you're being buttheads. Excuse my French. But uh, so we finally, in late to in the summer of 2009, the, it actually happened in November of 2009 when people started talking to us in the summer, and by November it started freeing up, and we had people calling us. And so we, it, what it did, it allowed us to negotiate our next our move to the next bank which we ended up with Wells Fargo, but get this. So the 2010, my bank agreement was up in May, on May, on June 1 of 2010. We negotiated in good faith with two banks and we sat on Wells Fargo. This is, remember we started in, in the summer of, of nine. It freed up in November. They did not lend us the money or sign the agreement until May 31st and transfer. We transferred the money to them from, 
to, to Royal Bank of Scotland from Wells Fargo the day before my loan was due. Oh, wow. So talk about finger bite, fingernail biting. I was like going, this is crazy. I'm like down to the wire. Are y'all going to back out at the last minute? Because we did have some people back out at the last minute that we were talking to. Actually, I had to call one bank, a local bank here, our largest bank in Birmingham, and say, hey, no is a decision. I need a decision. Yes or no? I'm okay. I'm not okay with no. I'd prefer you say yes, but I need a decision. And so they came back and said no. You you, you said when your lung is lung was due, right? Do what you now? Said, you said when your lung was due, they they gave you the answer. Lung, the, my loan was due. A loan. Okay, I was loan. like, oh, well, did he have surgery yeah. the next day? Yeah, I had to make sure. Oh, my loan was due. Then, sorry, <laughs> the southern, uh, my it's cousin Vinny a... kind of thing. <laughs> it's southern as a, yeah, I guess he couldn't understand Southern. So, uh, uh, so L O A N. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, perfectly fine. Uh, and so then after that, actually, the loan came through. That's kind of when the the sleepless nights went away and kind of had a little more peace of mind. A little, yeah. I was, I, I'm paranoid anyway. I think it actually. I think being paranoid is probably a good thing for a business person. You know, I always talk about there's six traits of an entrepreneur. I don't know that paranoid is one of them, but there's there's a there's one of them is risk taker. And I would say I probably kind of went over the top on risk taking. I'm a risk taker. Another one's driven. I'm extremely driven, passionate. I'm very passionate about, you know, well, about my wife and about the business visionary. Uh Problem solver. I'm not sure if I mentioned that one. And responsible. You got to have all those. If you don't have all six of those, you probably don't want to go off on your own. And maybe you've got a partner that has three and you have three. Otherwise, and I'm, I'm sure this risk taker one, I think of all the people I talk to, they go like, wow, risk taker. I'm not a risk taker. You know, so. Well, I mean, talking to so many different entrepreneurs on this podcast, I mean, that seems like the, the one thing you have to, because I've, I've talked to very smart people and they start really late in life because they're they're not big risk takers and they have to really, really get their feet in the water before they jump fully in. Yeah, I think having being a risk taker is 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 probably of those. If you don't have that and you can't and you can't go through it, it's too emotional for you. It's a really tough one. But you, as as I was saying, I bet in my house every year for eleven years. That's a, not many people are willing to do that. No, I mean, well, and then what happens next? Does the idea of writing the book or the idea of stepping down and kind of transitioning over to your son? What what happens next? Well, then the they had a, I was going to China. I've been to China twenty nine times, so I was going to China so much, and I didn't realize that I had a blood disorder. Uh, that meant I clotted easier than most people do. And I should have been taking, and this is really important. A lot of people take aspirin thinking that's going to thin their blood, and it does. But aspirin has nothing to do with anticoagulation. So you really have to take an anticoagulant to thin your blood to prevent blood clots because aspirin doesn't do that. And I didn't learn that until until it was too late. And I had five blood clots in my lungs. And I'm in the hospital and I almost died. I actually, you get a signal to your brain when you're going to die. And it's literally, it is so loud. 
is so noticeable that you're 100% sure you're going to die. And I got, I had that happen to me in my blood. And I was because my, my heart rate went to 30, you know, from 70 to 30. And then your blood doesn't pump to your brain and you start turning white and you're like, okay, well, that was what life was like. And I'm out of here. And so that, that's what happened. And then um, fortunately I was in the hospital and they pushed me down. Your, your, your bed goes down like it comes up to watch TV, but it also goes down. So you can have your head lower than your feet. And the nurses pushed me down the bed and, fill me full of dopamine and salt water. And I came back and I was like, this can't be happening. I was dead. I was a hundred percent sure I'm dead. And now I'm alive. Why am I here? And I had to kind of been working on a book and I kind of got the signal going, right. I'm going to say that signal came from God saying, write the book, write the book. I was like, okay, you know, I don't know how to write. How's this going to work? And so I just started interviewing potential people to write the book. I, I wrote some chapters and then, read them. I'm like, well, you know, a couple of these are okay. The rest of them are terrible. <laughs> so I found somebody to finally, after about a year, it took me a year or more to find somebody to write the book. And, and so it worked. It, I really wrote it more so for my family than anything else, but it's getting some pretty great reviews. And so if it can help somebody, that's really what it's there for. What did you want your, your family to take away from the book? how difficult it was to, to get to where we are. I mean, it looks really simple now that we're a, a really big company and, and making lots of money. And there's just, it's not like that. It wasn't like that. Were, were you ever worried about, I mean, cause I've, I mean, again, I've had a couple second generation or people transitioning to second generation businesses on here. And sometimes they, they talk about being worried about, or are they going to have the same mindset that I had when I started? And I mean, did you have any of those kind of thoughts or did you feel like you transitioned them fairly well? <laughs> yes. And yes. Okay. <laughs> so I hired a guy. So in 2013, right before I had this blowout problem, I hired a guy named Dick Cross, who's an MBA from Harvard. I got a great story about that too. And I said, I can't get my son to agree to take over. I think he doesn't he either doesn't like the way I run the company, doesn't want to run this. I don't know what it is. Come down and help me. And he came down to Birmingham and spent uh, almost a year, a little over a year, helping me transition William into the job. And William came to me and said, I really want some sort of system to run the company. And he set up this EOS system. You may have heard about the entrepreneurial operating system to run the company. And I guess he thought I didn't want to do that. But I was like, if you want to do that, it's, you're going to run it. So do it. Yeah, I'm fine with it. And so it really changed dramatically the way we run the company, but for the good, for better. And so he came in, he's doing a great job of running the company, but he has, he's done some things that did scare me. Like, you know, at one point he said he wanted to get rid of summer classics. I'm like, Okay, at that time, it's 90% of the volume. I'm going like, so we're going to, what are we going to do? We're just going to change the name to this. I was like, I think that's kind of the mothership. It's how we pay all the bills. That's a very, it scared me. I was like, don't don't make decisions that don't bet the company. Those are bet the company decisions that you don't need to be making right now. 
So, I mean, I, obviously I won because I had the majority interest in the stock, but I mean, I almost had to play it that far, you know, of saying, we're not going to do this. Stop talking about it. So you're scaring everybody. Yeah. At, at, that, that. at that time, how much of a percentage of uh, feedback do you give to your, to your son? Uh, was it, I mean, 20%, 30%? I mean, how much are you still involved into like the the day-to-day -day or the vision? Well, he became CEO in August. And okay. what I've done that's worked for me, I think this is great for your audience, um, is not going to work as much uh, hmm. and not attend all the meetings. So we have weekly meetings. I went from attending all of them to several to none of the weekly meetings. So he's not only is he running them, he's uh, well, when he, when he became CEO, he's, he was the president runs the meetings. The CEO is only report is the president. And I'm chair. I'm executive chairman, so I can do a lot of stuff, but I, I try to do as little as possible as far as interfering with what they're doing hmm. and just say good. <laughs> Yesterday we're in a meeting. I said, I sure am glad y'all are running this thing. <laughs> I would hate to make a decision like that. <laughs> You'll make and, the uh, You're good. You know, that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm now going to only quarterly meetings, which are the most important. They're two days long, you know, where they're making the big decisions on what's going to happen over the next quarter. And I participate in those. Uh, I'm probably doing too much in those even, but. I'll probably do a lot in those. And, and I, I, th I think I'll always, I don't think I'll drop out of those until, until maybe I'm not, I have a I set up a board. That's another thing. I set up a board. I'm get, I'm talking about changing it into a partially voting board. In other words, you will only vote on these things, selling the company, going public, raising $10 million or more. I'm probably even more than that, but some number, you know, these sorts of huge decisions, uh, changing the name, you know, these kinds of things that can have a dramatic effect on uh, the company. Acquisitions over a certain amount, I'd say not all acquisitions. With with you transitioning out, out of the company as, as much as possible, where do you see yourself in, in five years from now? Is it going to be relaxing, starting another company, more hobbies, writing more books? I mean, what are your plans? I was a hundred percent sure I was going to hate this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was a hundred percent sure. Like I've worked since I was 16. Uh. So, you know, I'm 71. So it's a long time I've been working and I was like going, and everybody said the same thing. Everybody said, you're no way you're going to be able to retire. And I was like, you're right. I probably won't be able to, but I'm really liking not working so much. <laughs> and like today's not a good day. Cause I've, I've been on I'm, Zoom has been terrible for me. You can't you have to come to a Zoom meeting. You have no excuse not to show up. So you come to all your Zoom meetings. And I was like, y'all just need to quit inviting me so, to so many meetings. You know? <laughs> and and I have a farm. And I spend a lot of time down there. But I'm, I'm really the time away is I've never had that. So it's it's like incredibly nice for me to think, you know, sort of get it, go away and think. And then you also stop the little stuff doesn't bother you anymore and you don't even think about it. And so when you go into these meetings, you're only thinking about really heady stuff. You know, how are we going to get to 500 million 
and what's this what's the path you know those kinds of things that are a lot different than most people think they're most people are involved in what's in front of them, what's happening. And this is the biggest problem, I think, for a lot of people in businesses. You can handle the problem in front of you that's urgent, or you can think about the things that are important. I call it the tyranny of the urgent. You're dealing with the urgent stuff that's not important, and you're not dealing with important stuff that long range could get you exactly where you need to be. And so somehow you either need to get other people to deal with that or try not to, to get urgentized, I call it, you're, you're like, people just get in front of you and say, you got to do this right now, you know, that kind of thing. Or pick up the phone and deal with whatever that is and drop everything else. If you could look back at your younger self that was starting the companies, I mean, are there nuggets that you would, you would tell that person and how to do it better or different things to do or mindset to change, anything like that? Don't make as many mistakes as I made. <laughs> Go in the software business. You know, this is, I can't tell you that. But I, I like where, you know, I liked uh, Ralph Lauren, not just his business model, but his products. And I was like, if I had a, if I, I love apparel, you know, that's how I got started actually in the clothing business. And so I think do what you love. I, that would be a good, you know, something you love. And I think uh, that's in my book is you can tell that, I really like the business and it's, and since I've gotten in, it's gotten real fashion oriented. So, mm -hmm. and I like that. I like change and lots of people, lots of people don't like change, but I like change and we're, we're coming out with 500 new products or more per year. So oh, it's, wow. and then we have our own fabric line and there's, you know, so we'll come out with a, every other year, we'll come out with 40 new fabrics and that's, very and that that doesn't include our upholstery line that has six hundred fabrics in. They do even more than that. So it's a it's a very it's very fast moving business. And so one of the things I say about our business is the great thing about the business is it's complicated. The bad thing about the business is it's complicated. <laughs> so the complication keeps people out of it because they're going like I can't do that. That's crazy. Those guys are crazy. Yeah. So that's the barrier to entry is it's financial financial barriers, but there's this, this other barrier, which is smelling the market. I kind of talked about that before. Mm. It's a big barrier. So you got to know where the market's going and be the first one there. And sometimes we're too early. Actually that we're going back and looking at old designs. We're like, you know, that really looked good. We just colored it wrong or it needs a wider arm or whatever it is. And we'll come back out with it. People don't even recognize it, and it'll be the number. In fact, our number one seller right now is a group I did in 2001. The oh, reason yeah. I remember 2001 so well is when the World Trade Tower problem, you know, the 9-11, and we were at market at 9-11 in the merchandise park. They closed the building. I was like, oh, my God, this is the best introductions I've ever had. You know, it's like we're not going to introduce that product, and then we dropped it probably six years, seven years later in 2008 or nine or somewhere along there. And then we came out back out with it three years ago, and it's, it's, it's number one. Recolored it, changed it a little bit. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll finish off with this question. I mean, you talked about kind of knowing the market. I mean, how has knowing the market and having a finger on the pulse changed from, I mean, when you first started to now this whole digital age? <sighs> 
Well, one thing, one the biggest change in our market is we were we, we were known as a traditional company. So the mm-hmm. summer classics, the idea, the whole idea of the company was design products that will not go out of style that you or your wife would buy for to put on your patio. And 15 years from now, it would last that long. It would last 20 years. Hmm. And you look at it and go like, wow, I had this stuff for 15 years and it still looks brand new. And I still like the way it looks. But now the the market is changing. There's a story about uh, wide ties in my book. Because when I was in the apparel business, wide ties came in and the guy that was in the store that ran the store and owned the store wouldn't get into wide ties. And I, and I kept going to him like, and of course I was 17 or 18 years old. I was like, Dick, this is like a, this is, this is a trend. This isn't a fad. And he never got in it. And he ended up going out of business, not because of that, but, but he missed millions of dollars in sales because he was unwilling to, to bet anything on this trend. And so we're we're the opposite. I was, I was like, we're not going to miss a trend. We might be too early, but we're not going to be too late. And so we're now we're in a modern trend, but we didn't drop traditional. And all of my competitors have dropped traditional. I'm like going, I'm not giving it up, man. This is I'm going to be the last guy standing because there's a huge market for people that still want traditional. And I'm not talking about you know drippy stuff, drip traditional, just really simple Americana with traditional. That around that chair is probably a perfect example. And so that's that's worked. Hmm. Now, whether they will still be able to smell the market after Mr. White's gone, I think they will. Because my my both of my kids, I have two kids in the business and they both have that gene. They both yeah. have this this. And I didn't know they had it till they got in and started. One's designing the fabric and the cushion line and the way the. And fabrics are really critical to the way your furniture looks. And the other one's designing the whole indoor furniture line. And we split up now between the three lines. And I do the outdoor. William does the indoor. And my daughter does the accessories and pillows and fabrics. Well, well, thank you for being here and walking us through, I mean, your generational journey. I mean, from your your parents to your kids, the whole the whole nine yards. Yeah, my great-grandfather. <laughs> Uh, what's the best way, um, if someone's like looking to find your book or if you put another book out or your, your companies, what's the best way of them just kind of staying up to, uh, up to date with information? You know, I like, I personally read a lot, but I've really gotten into audible and my roommate in college was an actor, producer, director. And so he read the book. He said, Hey, can I read it? I said, yeah, you can read. You mean like audible? Yeah. I want to do the audible. So he does Audible. His name's Michael Young. He had a show called Kids Are People Too, and he's won a couple of Emmys. And he's crying during parts of it. And I called him. I said, hey, "You were crying during parts of that. Is that was that real or acting?" He's like, well, "Which parts are you talking about?" I said, "Okay, that was acting." So <laughs> as you get it on Audible, that's, that's Amazon, and obviously you get that you know, on Amazon. And, and we have our own stores and dealers that carry the book too. So. You can order directly Perfect. off our viewwhite.com and it'll take you there. Yeah, and all, all the information, <laughs> and all the information <laughs> kind of is in the show notes uh, uh, below. So, yeah, go go find it. Go find the book. Uh, go buy some furniture. Go on the website. I mean, I looked on there before we got on the, the, the podcast and I have a wide variety of stuff on there. Thank you uh, for being here. 
everyone please subscribe please share and uh go get the book Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.